Hello, this is Joe. This is Alex. And welcome to Hungover Politics, the show where we talk about politics while we're hungover. Wait, wait, getting intoxicated was a requirement? I mean, I'm intoxicated. Shit. Do you, do you know how much rum I just drank? Well, I, I, I don't, actually. Quite a bit. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, there. Well, beautiful. Yeah, uh, like six shots, roughly. Nice. So far. But we haven't even begun yet. Yeah, it's only beginning. Alright, so, the, the most interesting thing to happen this week was an article from USA Today titled, Fact Check, Democratic Party did not found the KKK, did not start the Civil War. And, well, that claim just sounded absurd on the face of it, so we're going to go through it, and then we're just going to talk about how stupid this whole article is. So, the claim, the Democratic Party started the Civil War to preserve slavery and later the KKK. Uh, I believe that is a misplaced modifier. Because I don't think the Democratic Party started the Civil War to preserve the KKK. No, no. The KKK started the Civil War to preserve the Democratic Party, of course. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no, I actually, I think the Civil War started the Democratic Party to preserve the KKK. Well, damn. <laughs> yes. Uh, as America marks a month of protests against systemic racism and many people draw comparisons between current events and the civil rights movement, an oversimplified trope about the Democratic Party's racist past has been resurrected online. Friendly reminder that if you support the Democratic Party, you support the party that founded the KKK and start a civil war to keep their slaves, claims an image of a tweet Instagram user at Snowflake Tears shared on June 19th. You know it's a slow news day when they're reporting on a screenshot of a tweet posted on Instagram. By at snowflake.tears. Yeah. It's yes. incredible. On June 19th. It's important that it was posted on June 19th. Many Instagram users read between the lines for the tweet's implication about the modern Democratic and Republican parties. Some argued this past action discredited current liberal policies, while others said it did not matter. Everyone knows that Abraham Lincoln fought to free the slaves, but he also created the Republican Party and was the leader of it to help fight to free the slaves. Yet it's said that most black people still vote for Democrats who fought to keep the slaves, user at Schmuck commented. I'm a conservative, but I find this argument pretty stupid because clearly that's not what they support anymore. Values change over time. Now it's not over time, it's overtime, as in time and a half pay. Yes. User at james.doobie wrote. Who's the author of this article? Uh, let's find out. Devin Link. Yep, Devin Link. Devin Link. Overtime. Not spelled. Oh, this is a quote. Oh, no, that's unfortunate. Okay. So, historians agree that although the factions, or that although factions of the Democratic Party did majorly contribute to the Civil War start and the KKK's founding, it is inaccurate to say the party is responsible for either. Instagram user at snowflake.tears has not returned USA Today's request for comment. <laughs> Just imagine posting a screenshot of a tweet on Instagram. And USA Today is like, hey, can we get a, a quote from you for our story? Excuse me, sir, I'm from the Boston Globe. Would you like to comment on a, on a tweet you made five years ago referencing... A a certain forum online. Uh, how did you get my address? Uh, don't mind that. Uh, we have no, we have no contacts yes. in the NSA. What do you say? 
I couldn't even imagine. Uh, I, I say, this is not a new argument. In bold, Princeton University Edward Professor or Edwards Professor of American History Tara Hunter told USA Today that this trope is a fallback argument used to discredit current Democratic Party policies. At the core of the effort to discredit the current Democratic Party is the refusal to accept the realignment of the party structure in the mid-20th century, Hunt said. In September, NPR host Shireen Marisol Miraji called the claim one of the most well-worn clapbacks in modern American politics. Comedian Trevor Noah, noted expert on American political <laughs> theory, tackled the misleading trope on an episode of The Daily Show in March 2016 after two CNN contributors debated the topic. Now, keep in mind, this quote is tackling. He beat it. He won. Every time I go onto Facebook, I see these things. Did you know the Democrats are the real racist party? And did you know the Republicans freed the slaves? Noah joked. A lot of people like to skip over the fact that when it comes to race relations, historically, Republicans and Democrats switched uh. positions. Are you laughing? Ah. Uh ah. -huh. Uh -huh. uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's hilarious. Uh, I wonder why the Daily Show ratings are at an all-time low. You know? I don't know what could have happened. A similar meme attributing the claim to U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, has been circulating on social media since November 2016. Who started the KKK? That was Democrats. Who was the party of slavery? Who was the part of Jim Crow and segregation? Who opposed the civil rights movement? Who opposed voting rights? It was all the Democrats, the meme reads. I mean... Yes... You know, while Trevor Noah is here, uh, his, in his expert position, uh, opinion, everything went horribly wrong. And the Republicans actually became the racist party. Other posts making more specific claims about the Democratic Party starting the Civil War or founding the KKK continue to circulate. This trope was rated false by PolitiFact and the Associated Press in October 2018. Well, if PolitiFact says it, it must be true. A faction of the Democratic Party started the Civil War. Opponents of slavery extending further into America founded the Republican Party. They elected President Abraham Lincoln in 1860 in response to escalating tensions around slavery after the Kansas-Nebraska Bill of 1854 threatened the balance of slave states to free states. Southern states, primarily led by Democrats, initiated secession proceedings and launched the Civil War. But historians say the party is not to blame. <laughs> well, of course they do. Because why would, why would you blame the party that had all of the people who did this? The short answer is that the Democratic Party did not start the Civil War, Hunter said. The war was initiated by Southern slaveholding states seceding from the United States. Oh my goodness. The states did it. The, yeah. the pieces of land. Yeah. The, the pieces now of land started the Civil War. It wasn't it was, the people was, in those states. They had nothing to do with it. It no. was pure coincidence that they, you know, all the people just happened to agree with what the pieces of land were doing. The cotton, the cotton, the sentient cotton, just, it wanted to be picked by slaves. Yes. It wouldn't be picked by anyone else. If you paid the, sla if you paid the slave, thus making him not a slave, the cotton would not be allowed to be picked. It would shrivel up in your hands. We know this. It's scientific fact. 
If you say otherwise, you're a bigot. Yes. Uh, John Grinspan, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, curator of political and military history, agreed. Now, you know you're really specialized when you have that many subtitles. <laughs> a splinter of a splinter of a Democratic Party really contributed to the secession and the coming of the war, he told USA Today. It would be wrong to say the Democratic Party started the Civil War. It would be right to say some Democrats really contributed to the start of the Civil War. Okay. Can, can I make my Nazi comparison yet, or do we have to wait till further into this to start uh, making Nazi comparisons? You know what? This is Kyle. I, I'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's begin. Okay. So, well, let's just reframe this in the context of Nazi Germany. A splinter of a splinter of the Nazi party really contributed to the Holocaust and the coming of the war. It would be wrong to say the Nazi party started the Holocaust. It would be right to say some members of the SS really contributed to the start of the Holocaust. That statement is no less accurate and just as absurd. Grinspan pointed to the small group of northern Democrats. Oh yeah, a splinter of a splinter. Look, there were like five or six of them up north who didn't actually want to leave the Union. That fought for the Union is evidence that the Civil War was not Democrats versus Republicans. It was just mostly Democrats versus mostly Republicans. How convenient that it fell along almost party lines. The KKK was founded by Democrats, but not the party. The Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1866 by ex-Confederate soldiers Frank McCord, Richard Reed, John Lester, John Kennedy, hmm, hmm. J. Calvin Jones, James Crow, in Pulaski, Tennessee. The group was originally a social club. Oh, yes. It's, it's like how the Freemasons are a fraternity. Yeah. We're just here to, to drink, you know, drink some beers and not tell anyone about anything we talk about. And just, it's all fine. It's, it's really, it's, it's a campfire, okay? Everyone got around a burning cross, and they just talked about old stories in the West. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, that, and then like, one day well, they were like, you know, what if we became super racist? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it, it was just... A weird idea they had one day. They'd all been hanging out. They were a few beers in. They'd been singing campfire songs and telling old stories. And suddenly one guy just said, you know, we should be racist. And let's just remember that in 200 years, everyone will forget that every single person in this room is a Democrat. Yeah. Because there were a couple of Democrats up north who opposed the Civil War. Amazing. But no, quickly there were became a, lot of a violent white supremacist group. Yeah. There were a lot of Democrats who opposed uh, slavery, and they created the Republican Party. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, the correct. Democrats and the Whigs. The, they did. Yeah, they, uh, they, yeah, they became Republicans. The Democrats who opposed slavery became the Republican Party. Became Republicans. That's what happened. They didn't literally become Republicans. They made the party. Yeah. The party exists because there were Democrats who were opposed to slavery. And they were Correct. like, hey, we need a place to live. And there were Whigs who were completely divided on the concept of slavery. 
who said, hey, all the ones of us, all of us who don't like slavery, we're going to go over here. We're going to form this new party with a whole bunch of Democrats from the North who no longer want to be Democrats because the Democratic Party is too intrinsically linked with slavery. And they formed the Republican Party. Yep. Uh, let's Beautiful see. story. The kind of story you would say in a lodge with a campfire, with a cross burning. Yeah, you know? at a nice social convention. Yeah, 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 of course. Absolutely. A social club, you know, where everyone can hang out and they're all one party. You know, they're all hanging out in the uh, in in Berlin, and they're talking about how they they like the idea of socialism, but they don't like the idea of socialism really. And they're talking about the nationalistic roots and how embarrassing the First World War. Wait, what's happening here? I'm sorry, I got distracted. I mean, you have the wrong city. Yeah, yeah, wrong, wrong city. It's, it's definitely city. Munich, not Berlin. Oh, it was Munich. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I like Munich. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the beer hall putsch happened in Munich. Gotcha. Uh, and the the Nazi party, uh, or as we think of it, the Nazi party kind of had its roots in Munich and Nuremberg. Uh, it was it was not very strong in northern Germany until after Hitler took power, but it was incredibly Whoa. strong in Bavaria. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, its first Grand Wizard was Nathan Bedford Forrest, an ex Confederate general and prominent slave trader. Uh, any anything you want to put a little uh, a couple little parentheses there and a capitalized D next to that anywhere? Because I'm willing to bet. Well, let's just Google. Was Nathan Bedford Forrest a Democrat? Oh, in 1858, Forrest was elected a Memphis City Alderman as a Democrat and served <laughs> two consecutive terms. Weird. No, no mention of Democratic politician. None. Even even after he proclaimed his his support for slavery, he was given a second term. That's amazing. It's ama How is it possible? The Democrats are so enlightened. Only a faction. Remember, only a faction. A no, small, a, a splinter small of a splinter. A splinter. A small cabal. You know, four of or five officials. guys in the woods in Tennessee. That was all the Democrats who were pro-slavery. It was one experience. little lodge. They had some white bed sheets laying around. They cut some holes in it, and they said, you know what? We're going to make everyone think the Democrats are responsible for slavery and are responsible for the Civil War. It's we're, all we're a conspiracy going, to get Republicans elected. Yeah, of course. We're going to make, we're going, we're, we're going to make Halloween, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna outdo everyone in our social club for Halloween. Okay, we're all ghosts. We're all ghosts of the soldiers. But, of, but, of, of but to be path. really scary... We're going to be racist ghosts. <laughs> it's the scariest kind of ghost. Oh, God! <laughs> yeah, uh, so, the Democrats... The, the Democratic National Committee did not found the KKK. But it's kind of convenient that everyone there was a Democrat. The entire time. So, right. yes, the fact that there were, in fact, a handful of Democrats who were not pro-slavery does not negate the fact that the vast majority were. Because I'm willing to bet you could find at least as many Nazis who were anti-Holocaust as there were Democrats who were anti-slavery. Right. Like, even in the worst political parties, in the worst political climates, there are sometimes good people. That does not negate the evil of the party as a whole, 
or the majority of its members. And in this case, we're talking about, like, a huge majority of their members. The Just for context here, the 1854 Democratic Convention, I believe it was, literally had a walkout by one faction because the Democrats could not decide between being pro-slavery and pro-mandatory slavery even for states that don't want it. That was the debate they were having. Meanwhile, the Republicans were like, do we stop the expansion of slavery or do we just end slavery? It was the exact opposite debate. Yes. Like, the Republicans were like, how do we get rid of it? Do we start slow and just say no new slavery? Or do we say end it all? And the Democrats were like, what if we just say we'll allow new slavery or we're going to mandate new slavery? What if there was a slave, for every man a slave from sea to shining sea? Yes. Uh, experts agree the KKK attracted many ex-Confederate soldiers and Southerners who opposed Reconstruction, most of whom were Democrats. Dude, Forrest even spoke at the 1868 Democratic National Convention. Alex, this is after the Civil War, after he was a Confederate general, after slavery was already illegal. Could you, could you imagine... Um, <laughs> uh, loyalists, uh, British loyalists to speak at our convention about, you know, maybe how it was a bad idea to rebel against King George. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're, Benedict, Benedict Arnold. Yeah, yeah. Be- Benedict has been Arnold asked to speak about why treason is bad. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I'm not saying that this is a screaming, overwhelming endorsement of the guy. All I'm saying is, could you imagine? Could you imagine something like that happening today? Right. Oh, look, look. The KKK is almost a paramilitary organization that's trying to benefit one party. Oh, no. It was absolutely trying to benefit the party. Because the original KKK... While they did do their share of lynchings and other horrible things, primarily existed to intimidate black voters away from polling booths to prevent Republicans from getting elected in the South. That was their first and foremost objective in the original first-generation clan, with all the other terrible shit just being secondary in nature. So you know, they, they, they were a paramilitary shit. organization for the Democratic Party. That is undeniable. Exactly. Uh, but he said, it syncs up with the Democratic Party, which really was a racist party openly at the time. Yeah, no shit. But the KKK isn't the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party isn't the KKK. Okay, okay, okay but this is not just racist, okay? Like, 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 the Republicans were racist at the time, too. Yeah, yeah, it, the, it's the Republicans... racism, it, which was really a racist... No, it wasn't a racist party. It was a execute the blacks party yeah the, the, uh, the republican party was the made up of party. was made up of uh some people who in the modern context would not be considered racist but a whole lot of people who were just like hey the blacks are inferior but slavery is morally abhorrent that was the dominant view in the republican party so the republicans aren't perfect by modern mm-hmm. standards either not even close but by no. the standards of the day they were like 50 years ahead of the democrats on this issue uh, hell, no. like a hundred years ahead of the Democrats on this issue. 
I, I, I think they're currently ahead of the Democrats on this issue. Yeah, they are. But, I mean, I mean, I mean, but, I mean remember, at the time. Re remember, uh, poor people can do just as good as white people. That, this is very true. And you look, know. again, just like there are good people in evil political parties, there are bad people in the Republican Party, and there always have been. So no one party is all good or all evil. But when I'm you have one party that's 90% evil, and one party that is 90% good, I think it's okay to generalize the one with the 90% good is the good guys, and the ones with the 90% bad is the bad guys. I think that's acceptable. Uh, but the KKK isn't the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party isn't the KKK. Which, again, the, the Nazi Party is not the brown shirts, and the brown shirts are not the Nazi Party. Like, you could make this distinction on paper with anyone, but that's all it is. It's a distinction on paper. They just happen to be completely aligned in their goals. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's, you know, and all these the terrorists in the Middle East that are funded by Iran, they're not Iranian troops. They just happen to get money from Iran and have a lot of training from Iran and have very similar military objectives to Iran or the not-Russians who invaded Ukraine. You know, it's really convenient that this other completely independent group just happened to have all the same goals. Or there's just a distinction on paper for legal reasons. Beautiful. Although the KKK did serve the Democratic Party's interests, oh, there you go. <laughs> they're making this case even worse for themselves. Grinspan stressed that not all Democrats supported the KKK. Exactly, they became Republicans. <laughs> yes. Some Democrats supported the KKK, while others formed the Republican Party. The Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism senior fellow Mark Pitkovich told the Associated Press that many KKK members were Democrats because the Whig Party had died off and Southerners disliked Republicans after the Civil War. You know, God, you know, I, I, wonder I wonder why. why. I wonder... I wonder what I wonder could have happened. It's so strange. What course of events could have transpired through the stream of history that could have possibly caused the South to it was, dislike Republicans? It was just a marriage of convenience that all the Democrats or all the racists decided to join the Democratic Party because the Republicans were just, they had a bad logo. You know, elephants were really unpopular in the Deep South, and donkeys, they weren't that popular either, but at least they weren't elephants. And so all the racists I, in the South just went over to the donkey side. Also, this is from the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah. Who you think would be against defamation. Right. But currently they are waging a soft war on Pepe the Frog. And so I, 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 I don't know. Just just look, look into their founding. Anyone who's listening to the podcast, look into the founding of the ADL. And, and that's all. Look into it. All right. Let's do some research. It was it was about a court case, you know. They were they're trying to protect someone. He he may or may not have been a a good guy or a bad guy or or a morally abhorrent pedophile. <laughs> you, who who knows? Who uh, knows? Despite KKK members' primary political affiliation, Pikovich said it is wrong to say the Democratic Party started the KKK. Okay, again, the, they're well, making distinctions here without differences. Oh, no. They, like, 
but they're not at all the same thing. Just because they were the same people in the same place with the same goals doesn't mean that the, the corporation of the Democratic Party was related to the paramilitary organization of the Ku Klux Klan. Like, the, this is ridiculous. A reconstituted early 20th century KKK attracts members from both sides. After Reconstruction, and as the Jim Crow period set in during the 1870s, the Klan became obsolete. Through violence, intimidation, and system, uh, systematic oppression, the KKK had served its purpose to help whites retake southern governments. Oh no, not whites. Democrats. Specifically white Democrats. But oh, Democrats. Really, you gotta be really careful with that. You know, during, during uh, the, 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 the months before the Night of the Long Knives, the brown shirts had had, had uh, served their cause in intimidating people to support the uh, the uh, the Nazi Party in Germany. Yeah, you know, uh, but they were no longer needed, and thus the killing began. Yes, to 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 uh, seal support from the German army. Yes, in 1915, Cornell William J. Simmons restarted the KKK. This second KKK was made up of Republicans and Democrats, although Democrats were more widely involved. Okay, again, Republicans don't have a perfect history on racism here, but now that there's a slightly different objective from restoring slavery and avenging the Democratic Party for their loss in the Civil War, yeah, some Republicans did join. Because we had now progressed 60 years beyond the end of slavery, which means we still weren't at the place where black people were equals everywhere. But we that that opinion had started to become more dominant in the Republican Party and in politics generally. And so, yes, the Republicans of old, of yore, of the original Republican Party, who were ahead of their time 50 years earlier, were now behind their time and were more in line with the KKK. All I have to say is I want to see ratios. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, two Republicans joined the second wave of the KKK. And uh, 10,000 Democrats. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Amazing. Like, look, uh, Abraham Lincoln, had he survived into the early 20th century, might honestly have gone that route. Because if you look at his views on race, they were not modern progressive views. He just saw slavery as morally wrong. He did not see black people as equals. Because, again, the opinion at the time wasn't between whether black people are equals or whether they are property. It was whether they are property or whether they are not property. That Joe, was the I'd, only debate. Joe, I'd be really debate. careful not to associate uh, like anti-racist sentiments with progressivism. You know? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm talking progressive views in terms of the literal meaning of progressive, not progressive politics. Oh, okay, okay. So, okay. so like your 20th century progressive Republicans more than your, gotcha. uh, your modern progressive movement. Okay. So the the general concept of moving forward on an issue. Right. According to Grinspan, the Republican Party was much more concerned with protecting African Americans and their voting rights from its founding through the early 20th century. In the mid-20th century, both parties' stance on racial equity began to switch. It starts with FDR and the New Deal. Yeah. Let's just remember who appointed a member of the KKK to the Supreme Court because it was FDR. But the actions with Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s with the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights legislation really kind of seals the deal. 
Okay. This is where you know your expert is a fucking idiot. Because FDR was a virulent racist. And Lyndon Johnson, also a virulent racist. The only thing is, Johnson realized that the gig was up. And the Democrats could no longer run on being the exclusively white party for white people for a white nation. And so he switched the game. And he said, actually, let's embrace black people because they are now a big voting demographic. Voting, by the way, because the Republicans kept pushing for black people to gain rights. They had been pushing for the Voting Rights Act, for the Civil Rights Act, for like a hundred years. Literally from the end of the Civil War. They had started moving towards giving black people rights. And the Democrats had blocked them time and time and time again. And finally, as public opinion started to move towards the Republicans, the Democrats stepped in at the last minute and claimed credit for it. Lyndon Johnson, by the way, who had personally vetoed, not vetoed, but had uh, pushed against the legislation, what, 27 times while he was in the Senate? Uh, by the way, who passed in, the, in, the, uh, in Congress? Which party was it that passed the Civil Rights Act of 19, uh, the 1960? Uh, it was actually bipartisan. But if you look at the ratios, it was passed by like 94% of Republicans. And like right. 60% of Democrats. Okay, there you go. So, barely a majority of the Democrats, even just, what, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, supported the law. Whereas Republicans, who had been trying to pass this thing, not since the 1960s, but since the 1860s, were almost unanimously in favor of it. And the opposition was not, hey, black people don't deserve rights. It was on freedom of association grounds. The same grounds the Republican Party wants to push a little bit back on the Civil Rights Act now. And it's not, we hate black people. It's, hey, we are now pushing this well out of the realm of equal rights under the law and equal rights as people and into the grounds of, if you are a virulent racist, you should probably just have the right to do that because that's not really anyone else's concern. And look, if we allowed that, you might think businesses would immediately start discriminating against black people, which, ignoring the fact that black people actually spend a lot of money and contribute to the economy. And if you're a business, you want people to buy your products. Uh, secondly, the vast majority of the population now is very opposed to racism. And if you were to just say, hey, I'm Walmart, and I don't want black people coming in anymore, do you think Walmart would stay in business very long? No. No. No, they, 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 they would be bankrupt. I mean, they, they have enough cash on hand that they could not go bankrupt for quite a while. But they would never make a profit again from that day. Right. And basically no business would. Because you are now pandering to the, what, let's say 1% of the population that is still virulently racist in exchange for the 99% of the population that is incredibly opposed to racism. And Walmart literally exists by appealing to that 99% of the population. Preferably 100% if they can get it. Because they don't make much profit on any given item. They only make money by selling to as many people as they possibly can. That's why they make so much money. That's also why their prices are so low. Because they, they 
completely dependent on a massive quantity of sales to make a profit. So the Civil Rights Act in the modern era, I think, is overprotective. And I think private party protections should probably be repealed. However, leaving in place any protections from law. So the government has no right to act racist. Citizens, on the other hand, really should be allowed to do whatever the fuck they want. And when their businesses inevitably fail because they have done that, that's on them. But their businesses shouldn't fail because the government finds them or because the government arrests the owner. The businesses should just fail because everyone goes, holy shit, dude, you're kind of fucked up. You're going under. We're not buying your products anymore. Uh, let's see. Oh, and they completely ignore. So the, the party switch happens in 1960, but FDR is a modern Democrat in the 1930s. Uh, also, no mention whatsoever of Wilson, everyone's favorite president. Uh, I love Wilson. Oh, Wilson is the my favorite man. I mean, he is one of only three presidents with an alliterative name. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Who are the other two? Uh, Herbert Hoover and Calvin, Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge. Yeah. Now, Calvin so Coolidge, you have on the, the other first hand. president, and then you have the best president. Yeah. And then you have a president that no one remembers. Exactly. For anything other than building a dam. Yes. Actually, all three of those were right around the same time then. Because Wilson is right before or just a little bit before Coolidge? Yes. And Hoover would have been right after Coolidge? Yes. So it was basically like three in a row or two in a row with a gap before the first one or something like that? I think there's like a one president gap between Wilson and Coolidge. Either way, Wilson, the wonderful president, who just insisted on being as racist as he possibly could. And I mean, you would make white Southerners in Alabama during the Civil Rights Era blush kind of racist. He was absolutely fucked in that. Even for his time in the, what was it, the, the tens? The tens yeah. to the, the very early twenties? Yeah. Yeah, he, he would have made white Southerners opposing MLK and Selma blush. The, this guy... Uh, so, for instance, in the Treaty of Versailles, which was a terrible, terrible trade deal, the worst trade deal in the history of trade deals, <laughs> the, the Japanese proposed a little, a little amendment saying, hey, while we're all here as, you know, the planet, let's just agree that all the races are fundamentally equal. You know, we all have the same rights. We're all equally people. Let's just agree to that right now. And Wilson changed the rules of the convention. It didn't even change the rules, really. Just arbitrarily, in his mind, changed the rules of the convention. From a simple majority to unanimous consent for that one amendment. 
because he was very opposed to the idea of recognizing all of the races as equal. The federal government had been desegregating as early as the 1800s. As in, like, right after the Civil War, we started desegregating the federal government. And Wilson said, hey, what if we resegregated the federal government? Like, Wilson set race relations back and racial progress in America back, what, 40, 50 years? In, like, two terms. The, the man was just absolutely awful. Oh, he fired all but two of his black advisors. Uh, and then one person actually came to him and said, Hey, what if we didn't have segregation? Because that's dumb. And Wilson told the guy to go fuck off. I mean, that's not an exact quote, but he basically just said, Leave and send someone else because I don't like your tone. Because his tone was, Segregation is bad. He wasn't even being a dick about it. He was just like, hey, let's not do the whole segregation thing. And Wilson just told him to leave and send someone else. Wilson was an absolutely abhorrent man. And, and shockingly enough, for him being apparently the first modern Republican, uh, he was both a Democrat and universally hated by Republicans. Uh, according to Business Insider... He is the 11th uh, favorite president. Woodrow Wilson? Yes. Woodrow fucking Wilson. Yes. Who likes Woodrow Wilson? The Democrats. Yeah. Oh, well, to be fair, I remember just anecdotally here. Uh, when my dad was going to college, he was talking about, uh, he took a, like an American history course, and his professor was talking about how great Wilson was. And my dad was arguing with the professor, talking about how the man was basically a dictator. So, like, uh, I don't know, maybe the education system, like, I know when I went to high school. It is completely the education system. Yeah, I, I know when I, I, when I went to high school, when we talked about Wilson, we didn't talk about any of this shit. We were like, hey, Wilson was president during World War I, uh, and then, The man, the myth, the legend, he was crippled, and that made him, uh... Was Wilson you know, crippled? He, he, uh, he got polio. I thought that was FDR. Or did okay, Wilson and FDR got... both have polio? Hold on. I think that was just FDR, though. Hold on. Wilson. Because I know uh, FDR went through incredible pains to make sure no one knew he was crippled until after he died. Because I know FDR had had polio as a child and was paralyzed from it, uh, from the waist down. Oh wait, never mind. I'm sorry. I just I mix Wilson and FDR because they're both terrible. Oh, by the way, do you know that FDR is the third favorite president? Uh, honestly, I'm shocked it's not first. Let's be real, uh, because because if the education point. system covers everything that Wilson did and just acts like it was okay, like Wilson was, hey, he won World War One, he was pretty great. Like FDR takes it to a whole new level of. Uh, FDR ended the Great Depression single-handedly, won World War II single-handedly, and never did anything wrong. Hell, the, the education system will actually justify Japanese internment because this man is such a progressive hero that it's okay that he put Japanese people in concentration camps. Actual concentration camps, not, not, not border detention centers. 
Yeah, yeah. Legitimately, like the, he the, rounded they up. They weren't awaiting the, trial. They were awaiting the end of the war. 180,000 Japanese Americans were rounded up by the police and sent to concentration camps. And, and, and the vast majority of them were United States citizens. Well, yeah. And, and to the best of my knowledge, every single one, or as close to as possible, were all legally in the country. These weren't people who committed a crime or done anything wrong. They were born either in America or Japan and had acquired American citizenship. And that makes them bad. Yeah, and that makes them enemies of the state. Now, interestingly enough, that's not all the Japanese Americans that he rounded up. There were plenty more of them out there. And mind you, all of this is while FDR is having Japanese Americans fighting on the European front in World War II. So, Lyndon B. Johnson is number 10. Oh, what is wrong with democracy? <laughs> oh, my whoa, God. Whoa, 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 Yeah, isn't Calvin Coolidge, insult. like, isn't Calvin Coolidge, like, 37th or something? I think he's 28th. Yeah. Like, like he's, he's, yeah, he's super 28. average. No yeah, one, he, no he one is, cares he, about Coolidge. He is the epitome of average, even though he is one of the most based men in American history. Yes. Also, also. And, 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 and just, just a fun little thing that just says Coolidge, you know, he might have been silent, but he was still fun. He would buzz the buzzer in the Oval Office to <laughs> alert the, the bodyguards to his room. Uh-huh. And then he would hide under the desk <laughs> to, and watch them frantically search for Wilson. I mean, for, uh, for Coolidge. For himself. Oh, man. So what you're saying is Coolidge really is the guy. best president. Yeah, cool. If not the only president, and and we'll probably talk about this in another podcast about how Calvin Coolidge is oh, should really Co- be Coolidge. seen as the only legitimate president. Of Co- the Coolidge absolutely deserves an episode to himself, so we, yes. we will give him that at some point because Coolidge yes. is that great. Coolidge is amazing. But ju- just as an example of how the parties have not flipped, Calvin Coolidge was president during the Roaring Twenties, and I as a Republican fucking love Calvin Coolidge. Now, that's weird, because the party switched. He's a Democrat now. Of course. Except, no, he's not. Because the parties didn't switch. The, the, parties, the parties have ideologically drifted. But that remains true through all of history. I mean, if you trace the origins of the Democratic and Republican Party, it literally goes back to the Democratic-Republican Party of Jefferson. Which means, basically, these guys were anti-federalists, too, who later split over, shockingly enough, the issue of slavery. <laughs> like, the, they're, they're really, uh, despite the fact that modern conservatives like to trace our roots back to the federalists, we never were. The, there is no modern federalist party. But the Democratic and Republican Party are both anti-federalists. They're both descendants of Jefferson's parties. They just took radically different elements. So the Republicans were born on, you know, his, his view of general liberty, while the Democrats were born on his view of democracy. And, and agrarian and, localism. Yeah, and agrarian localism. That's really ironic to see where the party's gone, gone, gone now. Yeah, yeah. But the like, if you were going to say the Democrats and the Republicans switched, it's more just they have split up Jefferson's ideas between them. 
Because if you look at the original uh, Jeffersonian positions, you can see about half of both party platforms really stem from Jefferson. And the other half stem from everything that has happened in the 200 years since. They put Coolidge next to Rutherford B. Hayes. And Martin Van Buren. And that's possibly the most insulting part of them. Okay, so uh, at least I've heard of those two. He's Nick. Well, he's Jimmy Carter is number 26. Jimmy Carter is more popular. Jimmy Carter is more popular than Calvin the Cool Man Coolidge. That's that's incredibly fucked up. Rest in peace. But we will definitely make a, an entire episode dedicated to Calvin Coolidge. Oh, yeah. Okay. And hell, I mean, we, we probably should make episodes dedicated on how terrible FDR truly was. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we're almost done with the article. Let's finish that real quick. Uh, yeah, as yeah. the Democrats introduced policies to support voting rights. Oh, introduced. Yeah. The, uh-huh. they, uh, they did not just copy and paste them from the Republican Party. Uh, so they introduced policies to support voting rights. It became the favored party for most black voters and has remained so since, which is exactly what Johnson wanted. With that realignment, many racist voters who opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 left the Democratic Party to become Republicans. Did they? Did they actually do that? Because most of the racist politicians remained with the Democratic Party. Uh, the most obvious example, because he remained with the Democratic Party until very recently, was Robert Byrd, who was a Democrat till he died after spending a good chunk of his life in the KKK and reaching the rank of, what was it, exalted Cyclops or something, which is like middle management of the KKK. What? What do you mean exalted Cyclops? I'm pretty what? sure that was his rank. Dude, have you seen the KKK ranks? They're ridiculous. Odysseus? What am I reading? The Iliad? Oh, God. Dude, look at the ranks. They're fucking ridiculous. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. KKK. Let's see. In the early 1940s, Byrd recruited 150 of his friends and associates to create a new chapter of the KKK in Sophia, West Virginia. As a young boy, Byrd had witnessed his adopted father walk in a Klan parade in Matawaka, West Virginia. While growing up, Bird had heard that the Klan defended the American way of life against race mixers and communists. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that sounds like a quote directly from, uh, what's his name? Uh, Johnny Rebel. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, fun fact. Uh, did you know that Johnny Rebel later disavowed most of his music? Really? Yeah, he was just like, dude, I was just in it for the money. Like, Johnny Rebel was a little racist, but he was just paid by, like, the big races to be way more racist than he actually was. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that, I thought that was interesting. Uh, he then wrote to Joel L. Baskin, Grand Dragon of the Realm of Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, who responded that he would come and organize a chapter when Bird had recruited 150 people. Bird's house couldn't fit 150 people. So he arranged to hold the ceremony at the home of C.M. Goodwin, a former law enforcement officer who lived in Crab Orchard, West Virginia. When Baskin called for nominations for exalted Cyclops, the highest-ranking official in the Clavern, 
Bird was nominated and quickly elected by United, unanimous vote. So yeah, Exalted Cyclops was his title. Which is basically like chapter leader. So yeah, basically middle management. Great. Yeah. Uh, let's Call see. Oh, in, in 1944, uh, Bird wrote to segregationist Mississippi Senators Theodore G. Bilbo. Uh, let's check which party he was part of. Let's, let's just see. Uh, oh, he was he was a Democrat. Interesting. Don't know don't know where that came from because by this point in time, FDR is well into power. The Democratic Party is suddenly a holy bastion of race mixing. Uh, but he wrote to that senator, I shall never fight in the armed forces with a Negro by my side. Rather, I should die a thousand times and see old glory trampled in the dirt, never to rise again, than to see this beloved land of ours become degraded by race mongrels, a throwback to the blackest specimen from the wilds. <laughs> so he was a good man, is what of I'm course. saying, I guess. Uh, very moral. In 1946, Bird wrote a letter to the Grand Wizard stating, The clan is needed today as never before. And I am anxious to see its rebirth here in West Virginia and in every state in the nation. Uh, okay. When running for the United States House of Representatives in 1952, he announced, After about a year, I became disinterested, quit paying my dues, and dropped my membership in the organization. During the nine years that have followed, I have never been interested in the Klan. He said he had joined the Klan because he felt it offered excitement and was anti-communist. Bird later called joining the KKK the greatest mistake he ever made. In 1997, he told an interviewer he would encourage young people to become involved in politics, but also warned, be sure to avoid the KKK. Don't get that albatross around your neck. Once you've made that mistake, you inhibit your operations in the political arena. So, again. Well, I'm glad that he, uh, he, he yeah, discouraged he, it for the right reasons and not for political gain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, don't join the KKK. Not because the KKK is an awful organization that will, you know, teach you horribly th horrible things. Uh, no. Don't join the KKK because it will fuck up your political career. I could have been president, but I only made it to senator because I joined the KKK as it was already waning. And that was my mistake. Like that, this, this is Robert Byrd, the man who was reformed, the man who apologized for his time in the Klan. Uh, but he apologized by saying that it fucked up his political career. Yes, which is uh, which is the root of all remorse. Yeah, you know. Let's see. Uh, anything else interesting about Bird? Yeah, so Bird, uh, mind you, uh, who was it that attended Bird's funeral? Was that uh, Joe Biden? I don't think Obama personally attended, but maybe. Although I think Obama did say nice things about Robert Byrd. <laughs> that just reminds me of Clinton. <laughs> Talking about Margaret Sanger. Okay, okay. Uh, the, this morning, the president issued the following statement on the passing of Senator Robert Byrd. I was saddened to hear this morning that the people of West Virginia have lost the true champion... The United States Senate has lost a venerable institution, and America has lost a voice of principle and reason with the passing of Robert C. Byrd. Senator Byrd's story was uniquely American. He was born into renting poverty, but educated himself to become an authoritative scholar, respected leader, and unparalleled champion of our Constitution. 
He scaled the summit of power, but his mind never strayed from the people of his beloved West Virginia. He had the courage to stand firm in his principles, but also the courage to change over time. Wait. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> wait, wait, who said this? This is Barack Obama. Oh my god. No, notice, uh-huh. notice how well he is dodging mentions of a certain organization that he was very prominently affiliated with. Well, he showed the remarkable ability to change over time. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, I mean, he, he stopped being part of the KKK, uh, and he was really sorry that it fucked up his political career, and he will only ever be remembered as Senator of West Virginia and not President of the United States. Yeah. Because honestly, with how popular Bird was in Republic or Democratic politics, he absolutely would have been president had he not joined the KKK. But he was just in the KKK right at the time when the Democrats had to start rebranding and pretend that the KKK wasn't their bastard child. He was as much a part of the Senate as the marble bust that lined chambers in its corridors. His profound passion for that body and his role and responsibilities was as evident behind closed doors as it was in the stem winders he peppered with history. He held the deepest respect of members of both parties, and he was generous with his time and advice, something I appreciated greatly as a young senator. What? Just not members of the opposing race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Obama's race. Yeah, I mean, he, he, only, he was only half in line with uh, Obama. So he was like, well, you know, he, the man is only half Negro, so I can serve side by side as long as I'm only on his white half. Of course. Uh, oh my god. We take solace in the fact that he is reunited with his wife of nearly 69 years. That's hilarious. Irma, and our thoughts and prayers are with their daughters, their grandchildren, and their grand- grandchildren. And all the people of West Virginia who loved Robert C. Bird. Look, I'm sure... Yeah, okay, quick bet. Do you think they burned a cross at his funeral? No. No? Do, no. do you think the KKK held like a separate private ceremony where they burned a cross for Robert Byrd? I, I mean, it's definitely possible. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then Vice President Biden, uh, and by Vice President I mean Presidential Candidate Biden, also took a moment today to speak on the loss of his friend. And remember, they were friends. As we used to say in my years in the Senate, if you'll excuse a point of personal privilege here for a moment, a very close friend of mine, one of my mentors, a guy who was there when I was 29-year-old kid being sworn into the United States Senate shortly thereafter. God, Biden has terrible speeches. A guy who stood in the rain, in a pouring rain, freezing rain, outside of church as I buried my daughter and my wife before I got sworn in. Holy shit. Did Biden actually bury his daughter and his wife the day he got sworn into office? Jesus Christ. Like, I, I think I would take the day off. I'd be like, look, can you just swear me into the Senate in like a week here? Like, I just put my wife and daughter in the ground. There are things more important than my political ambitions. Um, but <laughs> that, that man, of course, was Robert C. Byrd. He passed away today. He was the... We lost the Dean of the United States Senate, but also the state of West Virginia lost its most fierce advocate, and as I said, I lost a dear friend. Not to mention the white race. Oh, wait, sorry, that's, that's me, uh, not uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> Throughout his 51 years, the longest tenure of any member in Congress in the history of the United States, Robert C. Byrd, 
was a tough, compassionate, and outspoken leader, and dedicated above all else to making life better for the people of the Mountain State, as long as they were white. His state, the state of West Virginia. He never lost sight of his home. He may have spent half a century in Washington, but there's a guy, if anybody wondered, he never, 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 never took his eye off his beloved Mountain State and his beloved white race. And we shall not, to paraphrase the poet, we shall not see his like again. And the Senate is a lesser place for his going. That's amazing. I need to drink shall, this. Shall we continue? Shall we continue with the article? Look, all I'm saying is, Steve King was rightly censured by the Republican Party and has just lost his primary in the Republican Party because of his comments on white supremacy. And here's Robert Byrd, actual exalted Cyclops in the KKK. And the Democrats were like, he was a good man. He loved his country. He loved his state. He really was a fierce advocate in the Senate. You know, I, I noticed no one touts his record on civil rights. No. Probably because there is none. No. And no. I, I, I mean, to be fair... Biden and Obama both failed to mention that he was ever in the KKK. Which you'd think, like, even now, I feel like the Democratic Party would have to mention that. But they also wouldn't be able to praise him at all. Like, they, they, they can't even pretend. They, they can't sweep it under the rug. Because people would call them out now, and they would say, hey, you know, that's pretty racist of you to ignore the fact that Robert Byrd was, like, in the KKK. You know, if we're, if we're canceling teenagers over tweets, we would have to cancel the Democratic Party for ignoring Robert Byrd's KKK connections. So, I guess, thank God he died like 10 years ago instead of now. Yep. At least for the sake of his legacy. For, for the Democratic cause, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah. That, that is the state of the Democratic Party. It hasn't really changed. And this is just easily demonstrable by the fact that the man who was largely the centerpiece of the old racist Democratic Party coming into the modern era was still praised by the modern Democratic Party. He is still popular in the Democratic Party. And that, like, again, he's probably the last Dixiecrat. I mean, I, I can't think of any Dixiecrats who really come after him. I mean, Biden deep down holds those views, and you can tell. But I don't think any Democrat is openly a Dixiecrat anymore. But Byrd never really changed. He apologized for fucking up his career, but he never really changed. You know, he, he never just came out and said, this was morally abhorrent of me. And Biden just happened to be born at just the right moment where he was able to escape his racist past because he was still a young kid at the time and he was able to say, hey, look, I was just in my 20s and my views quickly changed as, as views tend to do at our age. But Bird had been around too long. He couldn't really escape that easy. So, yeah, uh, just... The, the modern Democratic Party is is absolutely still the party that it was in the 60s. That doesn't mean that it holds all of the same principles. But that does mean that there isn't some like sudden switch between the parties, no matter what they say. Because they didn't. 
The Democrats did not become the Republicans. The Republicans did not become the Democrats. And the Democratic Party is still the same party that is, uh, uh, I guess to be factually correct, only sort of related to the KKK. And again, only sort of meaning... A small splinter faction. Yeah, a, a splinter of a splinter of the party that was debating whether to preserve slavery or to expand slavery. Uh, only a splinter of a splinter of that party. And by, you know, vast majority, a uh, splinter of a splinter, of course. It's very uh, started the Civil War and founded the KKK. And, you know, no matter how much they try to insist that they weren't, I, I mean, really, what does that demonstrate? That they're, they're running from their own past? Like, I'm a Republican here, and I'm not going to run from the fact that the Republican Party was not perfect on race issues. They were just ahead of their time. And generally speaking, the way we should aim to be is ahead of our time. We should be better than the average at our time. Because we can't just suddenly skip forward 300 years and know what, you know, what, what the optimal morality is going to look like then. But we can know that, hey, this is immoral now. And we can at least move away from that. And the Republican Party has been doing that this entire time. And we kind of found a sweet spot where we said, hey, we have now insured rights for everybody. Now let's just leave it alone. And suddenly the Democrats have decided that we're going to build a, a post-right society where rights aren't universal. Rights are, are racially based, which sounds interesting to me. Because uh, the, there's no historical precedent for the Democrats thinking that rights are racially based. No. Now, you know, it seems like their positions are inverted. But do you actually think that their positions are inverted? Uh, no. I, I would say that it's just their methodology change. Uh, yeah, because what we saw so that with that. LBJ is LBJ was quite open about the fact that he did not like black people. He did not think they were equals. But he was also the one who signed the Civil Rights Act and got the Democratic Party all the credit for work the Republicans had spent 100 years trying to achieve. And so the, the, the strategy just switched. is They still have the same objecti objectives. But they realize that running as a party of white nationalism, of white supremacy, of a, a white ethno-state in America was not going to work anymore because social views had shifted. The vast majority of the population was now opposed to racism. The vast majority of the population had now encountered black people in their day-to-day -day lives, and they understood that black people were just people uh, with more melanin in their skin, but just people. And... Dastardly melanin. Yeah, and so the the Democrats switched tack, and they said, look, if we cannot oppose black people, then we are going to overtly embrace them in such a way that we still get everything that we were pushing for. And what, what was all those things they were pushing for? Well, I mean, like segregation. So instead of saying, you know, here's a whites-only drinking fountain, here's a blacks-only fountain. But the, the blacks-only fountain is still the fountain that is 
two foot closer to the ground and hasn't been cleaned recently. But because it's labeled blacks only, they can claim that this is actually progressive social justice and that they are pushing in favor of black people by, you know, uh, the black people shouldn't be forced to share a drinking fountain with those dastardly white people. But they're getting the same end result. They're giving black people a shitty water fountain and keeping them away from white people. But optically speaking, it looks better on them. Because instead of being the villains, they're, they're now the good guys. They're, they're helping the minorities. They're just helping them in such a way that it actually gives them the, the segregation that they so long desired and so long preserved. And when they could no longer preserve it, they had to find a new way to recreate it. Now, am I saying that I'm 100% sure that that's their goal? No. Because one of them would just have to come out and say, hey, this is what we're doing. But judging but by the effects of... Well, yeah, if you look at what they've done and the way they've done it and the end result of what they've done, it kind of looks like it. It kind of looks like they're still trying to build what they did. Now, well, does that very mean... clear examples of this. Two very clear examples uh, of this would be what they call reproductive rights, which is black genocide. Yeah, yeah. And also... Uh, really, I mean, it's not even just black genocide. It's just it's just straight up genocide of the the what they would deem as the the weaker, the feeble, the degenerate. You know, the, essentially, it's eugenic. Yeah. And then you have like school choice. School choice is another good example of how they managed to convince you know minority communities that they are. Being they, protected they are, by supported, they're, they're protecting them by giving by, them a lesser option, by 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 forcing them to have shittier schools. Yeah, yeah. We're we're protecting the sanctity of your ex- education by making sure that it's government funded and protected by teachers' unions. And I mean, all those things still exist under school choice. But if we had school choice, then we would have you know black children from the inner city going to the rich white people's schools, and you know. They didn't like that, oh, God, 70 years ago either. I mean, the National Guard had to make sure that that was allowed. And, and so, again, they, they've, they've pushed for positions that, if not intentionally, conveniently achieve things that the Dixiecrats would have wanted had they known they lost. So had they known th- with 100% certainty that they were going to lose, they probably would have pushed the same way. Because by doing so, they could talk out one side of their mouth while achieving their original goals. They could reverse social progress. They could reverse race relations. They could reverse race mixing. They could reverse all of these things that they hated. They could prevent the black population in America from growing into a larger and larger and larger voting bloc, which, uh, judging by the fact that half of black children are ever born in this country... It seems like they've kind of achieved that. I mean, the, the black population has been 13% of the population since how long ago? 50 years? Yeah. It hasn't grown a bit. No. Uh, and this is, this is kind of weird because all the other demographics have been expanding or shrinking or as a proportion of the population. But the black demographic has remained almost exactly the same proportion of the population for like 60 years now. And that's that's really odd. Uh, but if you look at 
Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, you you do kind of see that that seemed to be the goal was eradication of the the non-whites, the impures, the poor. Uh, yeah, hell, if you want to see that it's the, the goal, uh, if you want to see that it's the goal, go on Google Maps, type in Planned Parenthood, and just drive to the nearest Planned Parenthood to your house, and then drive in a four-block radius around Planned Parenthood and tell me what color the majority of the people around that Planned Parenthood are. Because I can guarantee you that you live, or your nearest Planned Parenthood is probably not in a majority white neighborhood. It is probably in a majority minority neighborhood. Probably a majority black neighborhood. Because I, I know the Planned Parenthood in downtown Grand Rapids, while it is right next to a very wealthy white neighborhood, is in a very poor black neighborhood. Well, you don't even have to do that. You don't even have to drive around. Just look it on the map, and then load a, uh, what is it? I think Virginia Tech or Virginia, Virginia State. They have a racial dot map based on the census. And look at the kind of racial enclaves, look at the racial neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the majority, and you'll see that most cities are still segregated, believe it or not, uh, between uh, by race. And look at where all the Planned Parenthoods are, and you'll see that they every single time they are in uh, they're in uh, either uh, you know low income black or or low income Hispanic communities. Yeah, and that that's especially strange if they're in a low income Hispanic community. Because Hispanics are the least likely population to get abortions, largely because of the large Catholic influence. So why why would they put a Planned Parenthood where there isn't much demand? You know, the the Hispanic population has been increasing. Yeah, it's not like they're not really getting abortion. Uh, yeah, and, and suddenly really... Planned Parenthoods start up showing or start showing up in more and more Hispanic neighborhoods. You know, you you gotta you gotta think. Why is that? And, uh, you know... Yeah, yeah, Plan- uh, Planned Parenthoods aren't showing up, or historically have not shown up where the customers are, but have shown up where they want the customers to be. Well, Which is yeah. weird, because in business, the opposite generally holds true, is you go where your customers are. You know, if you're a gas station, you don't set up in the middle of a residential neighborhood. You set up on the corner of two major roads. Unless you but, have an ideological goal of normalization. Right. If you want to normalize... But, but Planned Parenthood... In an era when whites and blacks got abortions at pretty much equal rates, which was, uh, what, roughly 100 years ago when Sanger was around, just suddenly started popping up everywhere. But specifically, everywhere in black neighborhoods. You know, there, there were five, ten Planned Parenthoods in a black neighborhood for everyone in a white neighborhood. Now, why would that happen when there are more white people who are getting abortions at the same rates as black people? But now, all of a sudden, after these Planned Parenthoods show up, the black abortion rate is much higher than the white abortion rate and dramatically higher than the Hispanic abortion rate. And at the same time, the, the, uh, the white abortion rate is going down. The, they have put the business where they want the customers to be and who they want the customers to be. So, I mean, don't think that abortion is just about racial suppression. I mean, it is. It definitely is. If you if you looked at any any quote by Sanger, you know she's very, you know she's very uh, very open. open about that. Yeah, very open 
about the, the racial component. But really, this just goes back to a very ardent democratic, uh, you know, political talking point, which is eugenics, population yeah. control, you know, and that still exists today, especially with, um, you know, uh, all the climate climate change movements that exist and their uh, the political reasoning behind it and the talk about you know peak oil in the 70s and 80s and and uh you know global cooling global warming and all i well the, this is, this is where you get uh the population bomb where yeah exactly you know, there are too many people on earth and we're all going to die from it yeah so, so who do we so, kill? so they can't say who do we kill but they can say there are too many people and leave you to decide who we want to kill Right, and, and and if they just happen to imply that there are certain populations that should die, or yeah, for instance, abortion is always pushed to people, you know, hey, single mothers who can't afford to raise their children. Well, statistically speaking, who is that? It, it's going to be seven black women to every white woman. Like the the statistics are there. The this these implications are not about. You know, hey, uh, you know, there's just a, a white woman and a black woman, and neither of them can afford their children. They should both get an abortion. It's there are seven black women who can't afford their child, and one black or white woman who can't afford her child. And you know, so we're gonna push for that demographic because you know, if black people suddenly started earning more money, they would say, well, hey, abortion is good for the wealthy because the wealthy are are. Uh, you know, the, they want to be even wealthier. They, they don't want to pay for children. The, the poor need children to support them through retirement, but the, the wealthy don't need that. They would target abortions to any demographic or to any sub-demographic to imply that it should be black people getting them, regardless of the actual status of the black people. They just want non-whites to get more abortions. And it, it's, again, self-evident by where they set up what they push for, who they always use in a, as an excuse for abortion. So it is definitely ideological. You know, that that's why they want it to be government paid. Because businesses, although they tend up being ideological, because, you know, business owners, people who make up businesses, uh -huh. have ideological means, and sometimes those ideological means interfere with profits. You know, usually it evens out. Yeah. Right? But if you make sure that it's a, a, a government program, you don't have to worry about profit or loss or anything like that. You just have to worry about ideological messaging. You, uh, For instance, and if you, if you think that abortion, just the idea of it is supported by modern Democrats, and maybe not the people who are behind it, you'd be mistaken as well. Because a lot of the top Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, are uh, praised to very high regards, just like they did Robert Byrd, uh, Margaret Sanger, who yeah. was a known eugenicist and who advocated for the suppression, if not outright genocide, of the black population. Yeah, and uh, Hillary Clinton said at one point that she would be an early 20th century progressive. Well, what was progressive politics in the early 20th century? It was, it was eugenics. That was the progressive position, because at the time it was seen as scientific, as, you know, you can't have a, a modern population without pushing for a better population, and that means a more genetically pure population. Uh, poverty is genetic. Alcoholism is genetic. 
Yeah, all the all the excuses that the Nazis came up with uh, largely actually originated in the twentieth or the earlier twentieth century in America. That they just kind of coalesced around Nazi Germany, where they were able to really push them into the mainstream. But the the Nazis were inspired by us on who they should target and why, uh, and we were already past the majority of our mainstream eugenics phase when they brought it in. But those were our ideas. And they, they were specifically the Democrats' ideas. The, the early 20th century progressives, the, those, those uh, progressives Hillary Clinton admires, they were the people who held ideas that were virtually indistinguishable from, from Nazism in many ways. But Clinton just, you know, hey, they were, they were wonderful. And, you know, who really exemplifies that movement is Margaret Sanger, the, the founder of Planned Parenthood. One second, I, I'm trying to find where our Planned Parenthood is. You're trying to find what? Our, our Planned Parenthood. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the racial dot map. Ah, okay. Dude, holy shit. It's interesting, huh? Oh wow, yeah, it's fascinating. Dude, I, I, I already knew what divided. I already knew what the result was going to be, and it's still fucking weird. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's right next to a big white neighborhood, but it's in a black neighborhood, and the uh, again the the white neighborhood nearby is quite wealthy. I mean, there there are mansions here. Uh, I I dated a girl who lived in that neighborhood. That's why I know where our Planned Parenthood is. And she lived like two blocks from it. But two blocks over is the hood. And like right on the edge of the hood, that's where Planned Parenthood sits. Uh, I mean, it, it is creepy. It's almost like they used this map to place it. Because it, it, it's at a good location. It's near the highway. It is like right in between uh, a large Hispanic and a large black neighborhood. And the, the white people nearby are not poor white people. They're rich white people. Well, you know, rich white people who don't get abortions, generally speaking. So the, they targeted it right to where the poorest black people and the poorest Hispanic people lived in the city. The people most likely to want an abortion. Yeah, it's disgusting. Oh, yeah. That's what they want. That's what they've been wanting to do from the beginning. And... Maybe in this podcast, or maybe in another one, we can flesh it out more. We can talk about the nature of the modern city. You know, the, the modern cities programs and, and where cities are going uh, uh, due to uh, kind of current progressive discussion. Yeah, and, and all uh, things, once again, created by Democrats. Well, Democrats which which the, the modern city program is, again, or not modern, model cities program, is largely responsible for... Uh, black poverty in the inner city because it was not always that way. There was once uh, large, thriving black neighborhoods in almost every major city in America. And I don't mean thriving as in there were a lot of black people. I mean thriving as in wealthy. You know, black people in mansions, black people with nice cars, black people with nice things. And those neighborhoods have turned into ghettos. Uh, basically unlivable, with insane crime rates. Uh, and I don't think the black people in them changed. Uh, I think specifically the conditions of those cities changed. And changed in such a targeted way that 
the wealthy white neighborhoods stayed where they were. The wealthy Asian neighborhoods stayed the way they were. The wealthy Hispanic neighborhoods stayed the way they were. But the wealthy black neighborhoods disappeared. And, and again, I can't prove that this is some conspiracy of the Democrats. They could be completely incompetent. But the fact that their incompetence always leads to the objective they would have wanted 60 years ago is interesting to me. It, it kind of does look like conspiracy to me. It kind of looks like a, a, a city plantation because it, that's basically what it is. If you look anywhere around the city, it's basically an ethnostate. If you look anywhere outside of the city, it's essentially, yeah, it's essentially an ethnostate. It's just white. But when you look at the cities, when you look at the centralization of, like, the workforce, especially in the lower-class workforce, mm -hmm. you have these big, giant racial blocks of either black or Hispanic. And Dude, that's De it. De Detroit is so much worse. Oh, yeah, no, I saw Detroit. It's basically, their, their black community is divided by a single street. One street. Uh, look on the northern side. Well, no, no, I, I'm looking at the... Oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Warren versus Detroit there. Yeah, yeah. Eight, 8 Mile, 8 Mile. Yeah, if you're on the north side of 8 Mile, you have like a 90% chance of being white. And if you're on the south side of 8 Mile, you have like a 90% chance of being black. Detroit is hyper-segregated. Like, Grand Rapids isn't that segregated, but it's definitely segregated. Detroit is insane. But more importantly, Detroit has two Planned Parenthoods. And despite the fact that there are that there's like a massive white ring around the black core of Detroit. And that there there are little like Hispanic neighborhoods and little Asian neighborhoods in Detroit too. But for the most part, Detroit has like this giant black core with a couple of little sub communities in it, surrounded by this like big white ring. Both yeah. of Detroit's planned parenthoods sit right in the middle of the black area. Well, okay, to be fair, one of them lives on the border, or sits on the border between the Hispanic area and the black area. And oh, the other one way. is right in the middle of the black area. Like, again, look at any city, just drive down to your Planned Parenthood, and see who lives in the vicinity. Because it's almost certainly going to be poor black people who live right next to the Planned Parenthood. It's just unbelievable. There is actually like a, uh, a black suburb of Detroit. Uh, there's actually a couple of them, interestingly enough. Uh, and th these are actually in the wealthier areas. So clearly, some black people have managed to leave the, the core of Detroit and have moved into the suburbs. Like uh, Pontiac, or that's not Pontiac, that's uh, Portiac, Port Attack, or something like that. Um... And what is this? This isn't really a city. This is just a road. Um, so either way, the, there are clearly black neighborhoods outside of that like horrible Detroit core that no one would want to live in. But for the most part, black people have largely been contained directly in the worst neighborhoods in Detroit. And again, these neighborhoods were not always bad, but these neighborhoods were pretty much always black, or at least have been since the 20s. Or I like how you go to downtown Detroit. Or close to downtown, like a business center. And yeah. you just see white and Asian. Right? Like like this little box for the overseer. Looking at looking over at their plantation. 
You know, you have these, you know, I, it's probably has like uh, a very wealthy, you know, residential area right next to like the core of like where all the headquarters are in downtown. Right, right. But it just gets to look at all of the workforce, all of the workforce that surrounds them. Is yeah. Black. Yeah. And like, yeah, you, you move out of the city. And the interesting thing is, there are black people who live outside the city. You know, for, for everyone insisting that it's impossible. Uh, and, you know, everyone outside the city is too racist. There are actually black people. Like, I live in the middle of nowhere. And there are black people who live here. And no one really has a problem with them. But interestingly enough, you go into the city, and it looks pretty clear to me that there are problems with black people crossing certain streets. Like, uh, Grand Rapids, interestingly enough, again, looks significantly more desegregated from Detroit because... When you look at Grand Rapids, there there's kind of a transition zone. So like there there's definitely the black neighborhoods and the Hispanic neighborhoods, and on like the the several blocks around that, there's like you know black and white or black and Hispanic areas. Whereas if you look at Detroit, I mean it's insane. There's like two black people north of Eight Mile, and like two white people south of it. Yeah. Like that. This looks. Like segregation, the, there's actually only one point where I see that looks kind of hazy, and that is the block between Eight Mile Road, Vernier Road, and Morris Road. I, I can't read all these titles because the map doesn't let me zoom in enough. But there's like one little part of Detroit where it actually looks like the races have been mixing together into a neighborhood, and everywhere else the lines are so incredibly stark. Literally, you, you stand on one side of the street and look to your right and left, and you will only see people of your race. And you look across the street, and you will only see people of a different race. And that is weird. It is quite odd. It, it, it is stark. Like you said, you expected to see this, because we've actually looked at this map before. Yeah. You were expecting to see this, but it still struck you. It still surprised you. Yeah, every time you look at this. And I mean, if you look out in the country, you're going to see that the vast majority of the population is white. But you're also going to see that there are plenty of little mixed communities out in these small country cities. Like the, the, uh, the areas with a lot of black people in them also have a lot of white people and a lot of Asians and a lot of Hispanics. Yeah, But, but when you look at the, the big cities, the, the dot map is insane. It, it's like, you know, black people only in this neighborhood with like you know, looking at the black parts of Detroit, I can yeah, pick out individual Asian homes in this neighborhood, in the sea of black homes, or like individual yeah. white homes. Like it's, it's insane how easily I could probably extrapolate the addresses of the non-black people's homes in these neighborhoods, just based on how dense the black homes are. Yeah, but uh, just consider the. Um Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Continue. Oh, but but that's what we're what we're trying to get at is the Democrats built Detroit. Detroit wasn't always this way. Detroit was a thriving, bustling metropolis with plenty of successful black neighborhoods in it. And then Lyndon oh. Johnson, everyone's greatest president, suddenly showed up, de- declared civil rights a thing, and said, "Hey, I'm here to help the black people." Uh, let's have some uh, model cities. And Detroit absolutely fell apart. And that's not to say 
Detroit was perfect before. You know, the, the race riots in the 60s and 70s definitely point to issues that had existed prior but were made worse by the Model Cities program. Right, and you gotta you gotta remember, you gotta think about the current like propaganda, the current political talking points of the Democratic Party, specifically the progressive voice. Look at the cities. The cities are amazing. Move to the cities. They're so convenient. They're so progressive. They're so, but it's so any person who's outside of the city is going to be pushed by the Democratic Party. Yeah, back to into the go city. into the city to go back into the city. You know, go back into your plantation. Right, and and, and, and the people in the city are, are told that you know, uh, especially non-whites are told that hey, if you go into the country, they're racist. They're yeah. probably gonna you know th- rope you yeah, up yeah, on yeah, a tree yeah. and they're gonna kill yeah, you. They're and gonna they're... lynch you. They get the KKK is alive and well and yeah, well, well, which is, which is funny because the, the largest KKK chapter in America is actually headquartered in Detroit, as is the American Nazi Party. Fun fact. What really? Yeah, dude. De- I didn't know the dude, De- Detroit is objectively like the most racist city in America. Like from from all aspects, there's huge Black Panther Party. The KKK is there. The Nazis are there. Like Detroit is a race war waiting to happen in and of itself. But like, if you go outside the big cities, the the more you go outside the cities, the the safer it is, really, because people generally just trust their neighbors. People don't really care what their neighbors look like out here because, generally speaking, your neighbors could be anywhere from a quarter mile to a mile away from you. And if you live in, like, a country city, you know, in the city, you you look at your house and you've got, you know, what, 20 feet either side of the house to the next house over? And even in, like, an old city out here where most of the homes were built in the Civil War era and shortly thereafter... The houses are still a hundred feet apart. I mean, you you could fit like ten cars between the houses here. You couldn't d- drive into downtown Grand Rapids, and you couldn't fucking do that. Yeah, you, you could barely fit one car between the houses. So people are further apart. They're a lot more accepting of their neighbors, but people are told that living in the city is this this perfect utopia, and if you leave the city, you're going to experience nothing but racism. But yet, the racism is largely experienced in the city. And not, yeah, even, not even in the suburbs, so like in the city proper, in the downtown areas where they really want people to congregate. Yeah, because crime correlates with population density. Yeah. If you cram people in a sardine, you know, they, just like they cram the slaves, uh, you know, like sardines in the bottom of the boats, you know, if you cram a bunch of people in one specific area, conflict tends to arise. People like their space. Yeah. Not only is it kind of natural for, you know, humanity. Right, well, we're, natural, we're social. We want to have neighbors, but we want to have space between us and our neighbors. Right. We, we don't want to sleep so, shoulder to shoulder, but we also don't want to be 10 miles from the nearest neighbor. Correct. It's supported by American culture. This idea of, I have a big house, I have a big yard, you know. It's definitely not necessarily a European thing. And look what's happening in Europe. Just a little bit of diversity later. Just a little bit of mixtures of culture and, and, and language and a- anything like that. And this erupts. Yeah, and, and Europe erupts into chaos. And meanwhile, yeah. in America, where, where you see the eruptions into chaos is only in the cities. 
Yes. Which is going to so, have yeah. a, a much more European lifestyle where you're much closer together and you are, you know, less likely to know your neighbor. And at you're the same time, you're, you're much more likely to be standing on top of your neighbor. But yeah, you don't see these kinds of clashes in the country. No. Except what Mattress is- Guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All hail the Mattress. But yeah, yeah this, is, this is just something you don't see too much in the country. And yet the, the cities are what the Democrats are always pushing for. They're always uh, and, and, and partially They're because... Always putting most of their money into. And, and democratic policies always encourage dependence on government. Another benefit of cramming people into cities is that putting people close together, okay, traffic gets too bad. Well, there, there's not much point in owning a car if it's going to take you three hours to get anywhere in it. So you take the bus. Well, who, who owns the bus company? The, the city does, or the state does, or... Probably not the federal government, because we don't do that here, but, you know, some government agency owns your bus. Some government agency built the subway. Some government agency is probably subsidizing your rent, because you're paying $750 a month for a 300-square-foot studio apartment, and, you know, the the landlord is like, well, there are actually so many people in the city, I could be making $10,000 a month, and so the government is helping you pay your rent, and... You know, when you live in the city, you really have to be reliant on the government because you can't make it alone. And when you're in the country, you don't... Like, you you can... Okay, people need help. You ask your neighbor. You ask your family. You ask your friends. But you don't necessarily go to the local, you know, government services agency and apply for food stamps. You don't necessarily go apply for Medicaid. But in the city... It's just a natural extension. I mean, the, the government helps me with everything else. They subsidize my rent. They pay for my transportation. Why not ask them to help me pay for my food? Why not ask them? So living in the city really does encourage dependence on government. And the Democrats love that because their policies nowadays... Look, the, the main things that have shifted between the two parties, between the 20th century and now, is largely the introduction of Keynesian economics, which, by the way, we will absolutely go into at some point. Uh... So the, the Democrats have shifted on their economic policies a bit and towards Keynesianism and towards government dependence. And so naturally they want to put people in an environment that encourages government dependence. Which is also ironic because the party they always insist that they're related to, the Democratic-Republican Party, uh, was very much opposed to cities. Let's just put it that way. It was founded by Jefferson, uh, a man who very firmly believed that every man a farmer... Not every man a city dweller. So the, these are the ways they have shifted away from Jefferson. Well, the Republicans have kind of kept some of those Jeffersonian roots. But it's not so much that the party switched as the, the Democrats have slowly moved away from elements of their roots. Well, the Republicans really haven't. I mean, they, they've moved towards business and industry, but they haven't moved towards the city. They have maintained that agrarian culture. And that is why they are so popular in the still less industrialized south, why they're still popular in any area with a population density below, like, 200 people per square mile. Because the the Democrats have completely built themselves on this notion that the cities are pure. Well, remember, what is the conclusion of all this dependency? You basically have a capitalistic engine in the city that's what cities are. They're, they're trading posts, essentially. They're centralized markets. Yeah, overgrown. Yeah. And then you have, if you have your whole population dependent, 
you have all of them being taken care of uh, by the dividends of, of, of the market itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not even that, because we still, you know, you still have to account for the, the floating currency, right? Yeah. And printing in general. But they're being taken care of, and they're being worked to death, right? Yeah. In the cities. And what's... <clears throat> well, I mean, that's that sounds familiar to a certain institution, where you would basically be on someone else's land, you didn't own the land, you had no power over the land... Right, yeah, the, right. they they encourage right. they encourage renting. Dead. They want rent control, but they don't want to uh, deregulate and just make it easier to get a mortgage. You know, they they want to keep it hard to get a mortgage because then you would own your property. But if if someone else owns your property and you just pay them a rental fee for it, and you don't have like to that. think about property taxes. You don't have to think about you know any of these other things that require you know responsible financial decisions and maybe you want to export that to the wider culture as as a family unit you know when you realize the responsibilities you have over your land but it's not even just about that if right, yeah, and, and, and again you you have all these lefties i mean vox and several others have talked about it is how you know cars are bad for the environment but why do americans insist on driving everywhere but you know that they've all kind of come to this conclusion that cars are a symbol of american independence and our freedom and our liberty you know, we can go where we want, when we want, under so our terms. Yeah, and so, and so they oppose it. And again, move into the city where the traffic is too bad. You're better off taking the bus, where, where you are now dependent on someone else. You know, uh, I can't just turn my key and get in a bus. I have to go walk down to the bus stop. I have to go on their schedule. The bus is done for the night. I have to go home before the last ride. You know, the, this is the opposite of that, that freedom that you get with cars. And, and as someone who drives and who, when I moved to Germany, I didn't have a German driver's license. I, I noticed how much less free I was having to wait for my parents to take me around places and and go anywhere that I wanted to. And then I got my driver's license again and suddenly I, I could, you know, go up to the store and buy things and I could go get food when I wanted to, instead of being reliant on someone else on their schedule. But look, and the, the, the point, level of freedom is dramatically different there. And the point I'm trying to make with this is that they're recreating the plantation. Yeah. They're making you work in a centralized area without worrying, half the, uh, worrying about taking care of yourself, because the government will take care of you. But, but you, you are a slave to the system. You are a slave to the curfew. You are a slave to the whims of their politics. You are completely enslaved in the cities. You're enslaved to a an ever-growing cost of living uh, with a uh, an ever-decreasing quality of life, but it, it mimics the plantations. You know, you work for them, and then they provide your, your living situation, and everything's great, you know? Everything's great if you can package it like some great progressive movement, but it's the same thing. It's right. a, you don't work for yourself, you work for someone else. You know, the, the majority of people inside of the cities are, are, are not, you know, are, are not self-employed. They work for someone else. Yeah. Right? The, uh, the majority of, 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 the people in the, of the people in the cities are, have relatively low-paying jobs. And, and, and that's the result of it. That's the result of all these, all these plans, all these pushes for dependency. All these pushes for pod living, you know, and 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 uh, and and bug eating, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, all the weird stuff 
they talk about is is it's it's demoralization. Well, look, it's, it's if, if you want to know how uh, how uh, how much these people can't operate independently, they don't understand where their food comes from. You know, there there are plenty of Democrats who are saying, "Why do we need farmers? Because our food comes from the grocery store." And I, I'm sure at least some of the people making this claim are just are just trolls. But I'm also a hundred percent sure that there are people in the cities who legitimately don't understand the purpose of a farm. That that is how the food gets to your grocery store. And you know, we, we see this in other ways as well. Um, you know, De, De Blasio just coming out and saying that actually farming is really easy. Um, and, you know, sure, I could never do it, or I've never done it, and I don't want to, but, you know, it, it's easy. You put a seed in the ground, you put water on it, and, and and it's not that easy. If you live out in the country, you see how much the farmers work every day. They don't just, you know, put a seed in the ground and water it once in a while. They do a crazy amount of work to make sure that they get a good crop yield. And they, you know, they're, they're putting the manure in it. And there's just going out there every day and making sure that your plants are healthy. You have to remove the plants that are diseased before the disease is spread to other plants. You have to spray pesticides. There's a, a ton of work that goes into modern farming. And the, they just don't understand that. They wouldn't know where to start if they were told to farm. Uh, hell, look at uh, Chop and Chaz here, where you know they, they dug a circle patch in the ground and they put some random plants in and they called it a community farm. Well, the, you know, they weren't going to get... The, for some reason, they seemed to think that this was going to be enough to feed anybody. And they were growing enough plants to feed, like, maybe two people. For, like, thousands. Like, they don't understand the concept of farming. But or, at the same time, Elizabeth Warren talks about, you know, if it weren't for the uh, Mexican immigrants, how, how would we... Uh, who, who, would, who would pick the strawberries? She said that. Yeah, yeah. Who would pick the strawberries? So at the same time, at the same time, where like more rural, more Republican communities are typically, you know, the ones who farm mm -hmm. or at least are familiar with the agricultural lifestyle, you have a push to replace those jobs with what they see as inferior, because well, yeah, that's yeah, how and, it, and like that's how it used to be. Yeah, and, and, and who would work for, you know, hey, minimum wage is unlivable, but the, these illegal immigrants who come over and work for $2 an hour, well, that's fine. That, that's morally upright that they would be working for $2 an hour. Well, okay, so you've basically created legalized slavery then, because, hey, at least now you're being paid, even if you're being, you know, seven twenty-five an hour isn't enough to live on, but $2 an hour is just uh, wonderful, and we're doing this to help you, we promise. You know, it's they have created this new, absolute bottom class of basically slaves, who you know, without them, our economy and our food and everything fails to function. But you know what? Now we're doing it for their good instead of for our good. You know, who cares if the farmer makes profit on strawberries? All we care about is, you know, the the good of those poor migrants who just happen to work for a dollar fifty in a, a day. Well, either, yeah. either way, I, I think we've established enough that the Democrats of today are not as different from the Democrats of 150 years ago as they might like you to believe. Uh, yeah, 
So we'll be back next week to talk about other things. Maybe, maybe the uh, uh, also happy Fourth of July. Oh yeah, happy Fourth of July. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna forget. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there, there's no fireworks. I, I don't feel very independent today. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I know. Uh, all my freedom is gone without my fireworks. Of course. So yeah, it's it's the Fourth of July, and uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week for the next episode.